And to me, this whole quarantine has been like a psychedelic experience, a global psychedelic trip. That's Shane Moss, stand-up comedian and science podcaster. And then all of these interesting cognitive biases are coming to the surface too. Everyone's the most themselves they've ever been. The pessimists are the gloomiest they've ever been. The optimists are seeing the most silver linings. And like the conspiracy theorists are the the most conspiratorial. They've, oh my gosh, 5G uh, network. And Uh, 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 causing this virus because I don't understand the difference between correlation and causation. And everyone's doing like a I told you so thing to justify their own nonsense. Join us as we make sense of the nonsense on the Purple Principle with our featured guest, Shane Moss. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And in both his long-running podcast, Here We Are, as well as his comedy routines, Shane Moss has stood up for science at a time when scientific methods and findings are becoming politicized. Or even vilified. Consider the attacks on the science of vaccines from both ends of the political spectrum and how that could delay efficacy of a COVID vaccine. Or the long-running attacks on the scientific global warming consensus. And for the first time in 175 years, Scientific American Magazine endorsed a U.S. presidential candidate. And that makes Moss's decision to bring science onto the comedy stage all the more enlightened, if also a bit chaotic. Welcome to Stand Up Science, everybody. How about a big hand? For Matt Isaac, everybody. This is a science crowd, so let's talk about Cialis. My name is Shane Moss. I'm the host of this show. I'm an academic, which means I have no social skills. Coming to the stage, she's a researcher at the University of Washington. We're going to work through this together. That's uh, quite a welcome. In better and safer times, Shane's stand-up science show brings local scientists and scholars on stage to describe their current research to an audience looking to laugh, drink, and have a great time. In our interview, we asked, how does a comedian wake up one day and decide comedy needs more science? Or maybe science needs more comedy. Or America needs a lot more of both. I'm from... uh kind of a smaller-ish city in Wisconsin. I had a, what I would call a conservative, pretty conservative, like religious upbringing, blue-collar family and everything. And then I always wanted to be a comedian. And I always kind of went against the grain. So because I was raised religious, I went against that. I'm sure if I would have been raised in a household with uh, some like professors or whatever, I would have gone against whatever they were saying. But regardless, I had an interest in science that grew as I became a comedian, and I started a podcast called Here We Are, where I interview scientists each week. I started that about five and a half years ago, and that's when I started trying to do solo shows, integrating science communication into comedy. And so I wanted something that wasn't as reliant on being like punchline heavy and like set up punch. And so I put together the show of of stand-up science as a way of bringing science to the masses a little bit more. So each city that I could travel in, they could kind of actually get and see and hear from local professors and what they were doing in town and, and start these fun conversations. Mm-hmm. So then how would you define an independent comedy show? And so when I say independent comedy shows, I mean like rather than doing a comedy club and going to the Chuckle Hut and in um, Beaverton or whatever, been working there all all weekend. 
I find like little indie music venues that do like one night only kind of events. So I find like 200 seat like indie venues and I do my own marketing. So that's what I mean by independent, kind of a DIY model. Got it. So Shane, have there been any occasions when the audience has kind of pushed back on the scientists when there's things they just don't accept or understand? So if I were to bring stand-up science to just a regular comedy club, hey, it's Saturday date night, and uh, we're all going out to a comedy show, I mean, people would f***ing hate it. They just wouldn't understand what was going on, and it just wouldn't work. And so, yeah, no, I, I mean, once in a while, there's people just, like, not interested in the topic. The problem with stand-up science is that just because you're into science doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be interested in, like, zebra muscle research or whatever, like the topic that I happen to, um, one of my guests happens to be studying and, and presenting on. And so, so yeah, it's a scary show to do. It doesn't always go perfectly. It's fairly experimental. It's pretty much a different show every time that I do it, but it's also, that adds a really exciting element to it at the same time. And Emily, there's definitely some interesting improv moments during these stand-up science shows. There's been scientific studies to attempt to test if they really were outside of their body, it should have been possible for them to be floating around the room and discover up on a shelf an, like an image or, or a number, and they can't do it. Like, oh, I wonder if there's a number around here I just memorize quick as I'm watching them operate on my dying body. <laughs> I better take note of this. If there are tests after this, I better make sure and pick up every detail. And also some informative and provocative moments. Such as this U of Washington professor sharing research on cities whose sports teams have Native American names. Turns out his findings cut both ways against our current political divide. One of the other findings that we found uh, was that Although there were these negative effects of being exposed to Native American mascots and people's stereotype beliefs, it did have, ironically, one positive effect, which is going back to identity. When we sent that into the journals, we were roundly criticized for even suggesting there could be anything other than a horrible negative consequence of Native American exposure. And in my opinion, that's just another demonstration of the bias of the people who were reviewing the manuscripts. It didn't fit with their worldview. Their worldview was Native American mascot bad. Tell me why it's bad. But let's bring it back to Dr. Abigail Marsh for a minute. You're thinking about that comment in the Herd from the Herd episode? Yes, exactly. The one about how people with different perspectives come together through shared experience. You know, the, I really think that contact hypothesis is really all what it comes down to. And that's one of the oldest theories in psychology, which is that just contact with people who are different from yourself, especially in a non-antagonistic setting, is a great way to heal these divides. We need more of that contact in this partisan age. So we asked Shane about performing his shows all across our red, blue, and purple nation. Around the potential landmines of hyperpartisanship, echo chambers, and conspiracy theories. If you're going to be a full-time road comic, you're going to find yourself more, much of your bread and butter is probably going to be more in conservative rooms. But at the same time, artistically, I definitely have, I have kind of a, a fondness for more of the independent rooms that might 
err toward the side of being too like hipster or pretentious or whatever, or also just like a hair more comedy savvy. And so I've always prided myself on, on kind of being able to perform in both types of rooms. So like the, the liberal side of things ends up on getting things on television. And then the conservative side of things ends up doing more of the like touring kind of stuff. And so people often ask me how much I need to change my material going from like a red or a blue state. And it's less about geography and more about what the room is. I could be in a really conservative room in Boston and then go and do a a hip room in Dallas, Texas. So that makes much bigger difference than it does uh, than than geography does. So like Liberal rooms versus conservative rooms. Do you find one to be funnier than the other? I would say that conservative rooms are a little more 101, 102 kind of level comedy, a little more accessible. And it's more of just like a, hey, comedy club. That sounds like a neat thing to try out rather than, you know, just like going to play paintball or something like that. Um, Whereas I would say the more liberal rooms tend to be a little more like comedy savvy just like if you don't ever listen to music you're fine with listening to the oldies and the classic rock mix that you grew up on and if you listen to music all day long every day you're constantly going to be on the lookout for the the new hip bands and the people doing these more subtle things. What about independent voters who aren't purely conservative or liberal or moderates who kind of fall in the middle? Is there anything funny about them? Well, I mean, first off, much of comedy is like taking things and making them like really outrageous. As someone who's a science communicator and someone who does like a lot of material about mindfulness and whatnot, it definitely is challenging to be like, here's the funny way of looking at the nuance and complexity of the many different views in life. That's true. It must be very difficult. But I'm also wondering about other comedians. Are there other comedians you follow, you don't agree with them politically, but you think they're pretty funny? Well, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I really, really dislike conspiracy theorists and there's a fair amount of, so you're not a fan. I think they're kind of a little bit sad and pathetic actually, but I mean, I think it's kind of almost bordering on a mental health issue, but you know, and I, I know I have good friends of mine that kind of got themselves lost in the conspiracy worlds and alienated everyone that they knew and ended up becoming like these real hateful people. And, and it was just like really sad to see, but there's a lot of like people that are very, very funny that are into conspiracies. I mean, comedians are by a large have these personality traits of usually they're pretty intelligent. Usually they don't have a classical education and so they haven't been taught, say, like I mentioned, correlation versus causation. And so just like simple things like that, that like a 101 science class could have easily saved you some real embarrassing ideas. And, you know, comedians also have a fondness for really novel ideas. And it's fun to like think that you're the only one that's figured this thing out about 
shape-shifting lizard people or whatever. And so you have the wrong mix of those otherwise really admirable, useful, great traits. And you have yourself a conspiracy theorist. And, uh, and it's unfortunate. Do you ever filter things out because of the heightened sensitivity that's going on today? Or do you just kind of do what you want to do? I mostly do what I want to do. I, I'm here in Wisconsin right now. And I was, like I said, I had a conservative upbringing. And I, I have a lot of respect for many conservative beliefs. But I, you know, I think that um, I personally don't think that I think Donald Trump is a con man. I think that he would be a Democrat if, if it got him uh, the votes. And so I think that that's a, I think that Trump, the Trump thing is a different thing than political affiliation. And so that's my own bias. And so as much as I'm for everyone getting along and no one having these in and out group biases, like life's short. And I don't have the time to be bickering with a bunch of Trump supporters. And so I can't put no Trump supporters allowed in my shows, but I can put the word science in the title. And it seems to do a pretty nice job. But we, I mean, we should be grateful that we now live in a country where we're allowed to openly criticize the president of the United States, because that was something that used to be a lot more controversial than it is now. And, uh, you know, whatever party, uh, if, if, Joe Biden wins this next election, you better believe that I'm going to be critical of whatever president is in charge. Well, that leads to a question we ask every guest on the show. Our country is really more a mixture of red and blue, and our audience is primarily independents. Can you show us a little bit of purple by pointing to a prominent Democrat or Republican candidate or position that you either respect or support? No one in particular stands out in terms of individuals. I will say that I've always I've always thought that it was that the idea of having a president and one party at a time trading who gets to like take the reins for a while has always seemed silly to me. I, I've never understood why it's not more of a of a panel or something like that. And and I, I don't know why why there isn't someone representing several different parties kind of in charge at the same time. And and the idea that one individual checks off all of your boxes has always seemed crazy to me. The idea that because I think one way about abortion, I need to think this certain way about the economy, and I need to think this certain way about freedom of religion in this certain way about drugs. Well, you sound like an independent. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Again, I think that we all we ought all like to say that we're I like to think of myself as this independent free thinking person free of biases and <laughs> and whatnot. And I just can't rightfully confidently say that I that I am. I'm sure I have just as many biases as every other human out there. So we're getting close to an election and Presumably, people are going to be a little touchy and sensitive the closer we get to November. And if you're performing, are you going to like stay away from that topic or are you going to try and make people, you know, laugh into it a bit? When I say I don't talk about politics on my show, I mean, I don't talk about like politics in the way you'd talk about politics on the news. I talk about politics in terms of 
say like the genetic underpinnings that lead to personality differences that like that lead to these political predispositions um, for things. So I'll talk about something like that that's a little bit outside of the norm or, um, you know, I just had someone on uh, Deborah Lieberman and Carlton Patrick talking about their book, Objection, Discussed Morality and the Law. And it's all about how our evolutionary mechanisms meant for disgust so that we avoid like eating the wrong things have kind of been built on top of for uh, for our and used to assess our moral judgments so we have this um once you have built this capacity for disgust then you can use it to to persuade people in a political climate so i dig into some more of the subtle nuances if i am going to touch politics at all That's interesting, Emily. Right there, Shane brought up one of the key points neuroscientist Jay Van Bavel made in our Brain on Partisanship episode. About the surprisingly biological foundations of political belief. The genetic stuff, I think, is really compelling. And I remember the first time I heard about it, I was was shocked. It changed how I thought about politics. What they find is that identical twins are dramatically more likely to have the same political preferences. And so what that says is that politics, our policy preferences and political preferences, are heavily shaped by our genes. In fact, if you took an identical twin and just, you know, from a Democratic family and separated them at birth and raised another one in a Republican family, uh, those twins would still be very likely to share the same politics. Maybe it's not so surprising that Shane would be familiar with this research. He's been interviewing a wide range of scientists on his podcast for five years now. Professor of Psychology at the University of Minnesota, Colin D. Young is joining me today. I am a pediatric occupational therapist. Professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Nina Pfefferman, I'm a professor in, in both the departments of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and Mathematics at University of Tennessee in Knoxville. In this final part of the interview, we hear from Shane, who is, remember, a stand-up comedian by profession. About the respect he has for good science and scientists, whether they're famous or not so famous. One of my favorite things about my science podcast is I figure out how wrong I am all of the time. Man, I, I can go into an interview thinking that I'm an expert on a subject, and then I talk with someone who's an actual expert, and every assumption that I have, they go, oh, actually, there's this other way of looking at it. And then, and then I, I get to feel, uh, I get to be corrected and see how wrong I was, which is a privilege. What do you think about that then in terms of politics? Because on this podcast, we talk about that, you know, like none of us know everything and we all have different viewpoints. You know, there's a lot of personality differences in that. There's, you know, within personality research, there's these kind of big five personality categories, conscientiousness, agreeability, extroversion, neuroticism, and openness. And neuroticism meaning like susceptibility to low emotional affects. But um, so openness is is like how, what is your threshold for for uncertainty and change and new ideas. And so if you're lower in openness, you might have the, you'll probably have this trait, meaning like a, a lower 
or, or a higher need for closure. And this is something you can put someone in an MRI and you can see their need for closure. And so, so you know, a, a lot of this stuff is just is less politically charged and more just like personality um, traits. And then at the same time, I'm a low conscientious individual who right now is looking at maybe the messiest room the world has ever seen. And I'm bad at scheduling things and I, I forget stuff and I, I screw things up. And so, you know, it's hard for me to necessarily judge someone for having this need for closure, which, by the way, is a little higher correlated with conservatism. And it's hard for me to feel smarter than anyone when I just look back on my life and see just how much I've messed up like over and over. And so so I definitely don't think that I'm smarter than anyone. The only thing that I think is smart that I do is trying to acquire more knowledge. And sounds like your podcast, Here We Are, is a great way to do that. Do you have a favorite guest or two who just kind of blew you away with some insight? Robert Sapolsky is probably my favorite scientist ever. And um, and I think that that the world would be a better place if, if people got into his work. Um, and he, he especially does a lot of stress research stuff, which is as relevant and important now more than ever. And I had this woman, Nina Pfefferman, who is a... Um, theoretical mathematician modeling, spent a career modeling, um, theoretically modeling pandemics and is now an applied mathematician <laughs> um, <laughs> as, as there's a real pandemic to work on. And she explained um, this issue and, and the, uh, from both what is a virus and and what is this flattening the curve stuff about and why are these these different political takes on it in a really really unbiased um, and so that was that was a really a really really cool one I was super proud of it it just it felt very important but I've had I, I've had so many incredible people in, in one of the one of the most wonderful things about doing my my podcast is that I don't just get, um, you know, I could just try to get like Malcolm Gladwell or something like that or Steven Pinker, for example. I've had him on Stand Up Science. And so it's cool to get these big names and everything, but it's more of a treat for me to get to bring some like unknown scientist that has like 50 Twitter followers and has never gotten to share their work publicly before and is doing like some really incredible, interesting facet of science. And, and that brings me a lot of fulfillment that I get to do that. You're listening to The Purple Principle. And that was our featured guest today, comedian and podcaster Shane Moss, creator of the Stand Up Science comedy show and host of the long-running science podcast, Here We Are. And even if you think you're not interested in science. Or maybe especially if you know you're not. It's highly recommended and available on all major streaming apps. 
Next up for the Purple Principle, we'll look at two cases where nonpartisanship takes on hyperpartisanship in this 2020 election. Featured guest David Krukoff is running as an independent for Congress in Washington, D.C. Without much hope of winning a long-held Democratic seat. But to highlight a nonpartisan solution for the half million U.S. citizens of D.C. who do not have, and have never had, a voting representative in the U.S. Congress. In addition to running for delegate, which is the Congress position of the District of Columbia, which is a non-voting position. I am the leader in many respects of the retrocessionists. So I'm the creator of something called Douglas County, Maryland, as the future of the District of Columbia. And we'll take a close look at ballot question two in the great and highly independent state of Alaska. This is very likely the most ambitious attempt at electoral reform in U.S. history. This includes opening primaries to independents, instituting top four ranked choice voting, and creating campaign finance transparency. We'll be speaking with the campaign manager, Shea Siegert, about what's at stake, not just for Alaska, but for the rest of our not-so-United States. We can't make this ballot measure about a certain party. We can't make this about a certain politician because it's simply not. Its genesis was how are we going to provide the best election system to the Alaska voter? How are we going to provide Alaska voters with the most voice, the most choice, and the most power? And we found that open primaries and ranked choice voting and financial disclosure was that way. And the parties coming out against us just kind of proves case in point that they really don't want to give up this power. Join us on The Purple Principle as we take a 360-degree tour around partisanship, asking these questions, how did we get so partisan? How could we get less partisan? And can independent-minded Americans in D.C., Alaska, and points in between help heal the divide? This is Robert Pease for The Purple Principle team. Emily Crisetti, staff reporter, Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer, Janice Murphy, marketing and outreach, Emily Holloway, research and fact-checking. All music on today's episode was composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. There's more info and connectivity via social media and on our website, purpleprinciple.com.